Hello, and welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today's guest on the podcast is Michael Siegel. He is the founder and CEO of Skylight, which is a leading digital photo frame and calendar brand that helps families stay connected. Michael founded Skylight in 2014 while he was a student at Harvard Business School. He was living hundreds of miles away from family and was eager to invent a device that made it easy to share photos with faraway loved ones in a unique way. After raising $55,000 on Kickstarter, he created one of the first Wi-Fi connected digital photo frames, which started shipping a few months later. Since launching, Skylight has grown to over 5 million users and has become the number one best-selling brand of digital photo frames on Amazon. This sounds really cool, Bela. I mean, I always love when you interview these founders and we get to hear their stories of how they were successful because it's always different. There's no like one right answer to this as, as you know, we both know, but these are, there's always interesting lessons to learn and there's always these fascinating twists and turns. So let's get right to it. Uh, the interview with Michael Siegel. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Bale. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, super. So uh, tell us uh, a little bit about your company. My company's called Skylight, and we've been at it for nine years, since 2014. Uh, we make smart home hardware products for families that we think of as solving really important focused problems in people's lives. So most people might know us for the Skylight Frame, which is the most popular smart digital photo frame on the market. Uh, we brought that to market in 2015, and today we're, we're the leader in the space and still innovating. Uh, and more recently, uh, we've had a, our second product start to really gain popularity, which is Skylight Calendar. And that is for families, usually with kids, but not always, who have a strong organizational need, a bit of chaos in the home that they want to subdue. And it's a big, smart calendar on the wall that does chores and meals and everything a family needs. So between those two products, our relatively small team has our hands full. Oh, wow. Sounds kind of neat. So uh, where did the idea for, for these products come from? Um, so I'll tell you the specific story for both, and I'll tell you the philosophy. Uh, the specific story is uh, in 2014, I was in business school, uh, surrounded by lots of people like myself who are far away from our families. And so we wanted to build a business. There was a host of ideas that were on the list, so to speak. And as we went around and talked to our peers and just folks in the area, the one idea that made people's eyes light up, and you'll hear me use that phrase multiple times because it genuinely made their eyes light up, made them sit up in their seats, was the idea of a picture frame that you could send photos to anytime from anywhere. Your family members could do it too. And mom, dad, grandma would be delighted to receive those photos. So when we when when we saw people's eyes lighting up, we knew we had something, and it's more or less been downhill uh, from there. Uh, the second part of the story, because really Skylight Calendar was born fairly independently, we mm. went around to our most passionate customers about four years into the company, and we said, "What else do you need?" And again, we we listened when we had a long list of ideas. And the one thing that made people's eyes light up was the idea of a calendar to organize their lives. 
it was probably not even in my top 10 list personally of things I was excited about. Yeah. yeah. But, and, and here comes the philosophy. At our company, our product philosophy is simple. Just listen, but don't listen to what people say. Listen to their energy. Listen to what genuinely seems to be electric. Get them excited. Uh, and the value of that is then if it takes years to build the product, which it did with Skylight Calendar, it was a four-year overnight success, we knew that they needed it. So we just hadn't built it right, but we knew we remembered the fire in the eyes yeah. and the passion. And so we knew we, we we had to keep working and eventually it caught on and now it's growing like a weed. Yeah. Well, there's a real little nugget in there, what you said about don't just listen to what they say, but sort of listen to how they say it and their energy about it. That's uh, the nugget. Cause, yeah. Because that that's much more indicative of sort of how they really feel about it. Cause they could just be exactly. being polite, right? People just polite, try so hard to be polite, right? Yeah, exactly. they, they, they just want to be nice and compliment your idea. And we warn them, please tear down our idea. We, we love to set that expectation, but it's still hard. So you really have to listen with your heart in a way. Uh, another trick I use very regularly is I ask people to give me their enthusiasm on a scale of one to 10. And believe it or not, people will spend 10 minutes telling me how much they want and love an idea. And when I ask that question, they'll go, you know, five. <laughs> and so at our company, yeah. the rule is if you're not getting nines and tens, it's yeah. not a real validation of, of a feature or product. Yeah. Yeah. yeah super. So uh, picture frames, electronic picture frames, sort of a crowded space. Uh, you know, there's a lot of competition out there. Uh, they've been around for a while. So what sort of makes Skylight uh, special? So it's a two-part answer. In 2015, when we launched, the idea of a smart picture frame that was touchscreen that anyone in the family could send to right from their phones and upload remotely, that was a fairly novel idea. There was maybe one or two players doing it. I won't say we were the first, but we were close. Um, before that, you had to upload the uh, little SD card and basically, they would just become bricks in the house yes. where either they got turned off or they got 10 photos on repeat for the next 10 years. So we were one of the first companies to realize, oh, well, technology's here with Wi-Fi enabled Android devices to solve that. Um, and so we did. So that was phase one. Your question, I think, has a new meaning now in 2023, because in the last, I would say, four years, the field has definitely gotten more competitive. Um, and I would break it into the big guys, you know, Google, Amazon, all have some sort of a smart display product. I'll talk about them. Uh, you got the really smart startups. And there's a couple of those who we admire and are friendly with that we're competing with in the market. And then you have the overseas copycats, right? You know, there are countries like predominantly China that are very good at making this sort of hardware and okay at software. Um, so let me just address all three briefly. Um, the big guys surprisingly don't really worry about us. People love that we are a focused device that makes it effortless and really simple for the recipient to just get photos from the family. The Echo Show is like a Swiss army knife. It's great for some things, but it's not great for what we focus on. So focus is the operative word there. Uh, the copycats are also you know, getting some share mostly on Amazon. But if you look at every hardware company, that happens. But the question is, 
do people care about brand and user experience in our category? We know the answer is yes. Simplicity, a focus on features for the family, continuous innovation, people look to us for that. So it's not that they wouldn't consider the alternative, but they'll generally start with Skylight or one of the couple big brands first. And then if our price is right, they'll stay with us. So it's, it's ours to lose, fortunately, since we started early. Um, and then finally, there's a couple startups that are definitely keeping us on our toes. Um, like I said, we admire them, we compete with them. And there's only one answer to that, which is keep shipping amazing new features, keep listening for that customer energy of what else could be delightful. And that could be colors, designs, like the physical place in the home or, or home decor philosophy, yeah. right? Because you don't think of a digital picture frame as a beautiful home decor item, but it could be. And that's what we're heading towards. Um, and also right. software, just really cool software features. We've got a lot that's in the hopper that uh, in the next year, I think should set us apart. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the decor piece of it, because I think about photographs, you know, in the traditional sense, the ones on paper, and you'd go pick out a picture frame, you would spend a lot of time thinking about what color, what design, how big, you know, the border, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that was that was just as important as the picture going into it. And and for for large part, it appears to me at least that most of these uh, electronic picture frame folks have it, it comes in black or white. Pick, you know which color do you want? It's a little better than the Model T Ford, but not a lot. I think you're right. Uh, we had an early intuition for this uh, in 2015, and that's why we launched a b genuine black wood frame with a nice white mat. That was the design that people seemed to respond to most frequently. Uh, but then we didn't do anything. I got to be honest with you, because we're, we were a bootstrap company until a sure, year ago. Yeah. We were like less than 20 people, I think. Um, so now that we have a bit more resources, we are thinking very hard about how can we make this an item you are genuinely proud to have in your home. The first thing we did was we launched a beautiful large one, right? Because some people want a statement home yeah. almost like a, a temple for their photos so the the 15 inch skylight is uh is that and more recently we've launched colors because i think we learned as much as we talk to people about what's the one beautiful design the better digital picture frame what we really learned is that design is about variety and so we've got gold silver uh yeah. white and other uh designs coming and that's really our first foray into going beyond the Model T, because you're so right about that. It's it's only the first or second inning on being a design brand, which we right. would love to be. Right, right, right. Because the, the picture part's sort of a commodity almost. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't four years ago, but admittedly yeah. it is now. So it, I think it, you're spot on. Yeah, I mean, su success will make it a commodity. <laughs> right? That's right, meaning, that's meaning right. So successful market. It that's becomes right. a commodity. That's just for what it's worth. Is. The calendar does not, I believe, currently does not have that problem. It took us probably without exaggerating 10 to 20 X the engineering effort, mistakes, kind of ugly product development work to create a product people loved there. Right. So we right. think there's more of a software moat on the calendar and home organization side, but not so much on the photo side. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly imagine on the calendar, sort of the user interface is of utmost importance because you're interacting with it multiple times a day. 
Exactly. A, a, a picture a picture is sort of static other than, you know, you're you're uploading some more or you're taking some off. But other than that, it's sort of static. You're not really interacting with it that much. But a calendar, holy smokes, a family of four. Everyone with it. So you not only do you have to be able to have, you know, maybe someone in their 70s who can interact with it, but also someone who's 12 interact with it. So that's a that's a really big user interface challenge, I can imagine. And the one who gets it right is the one who wins there. I think you nailed it. That's exactly right. Um, it's much harder. Yeah. It's used yeah. It's used with great frequency throughout the day. Yeah, interesting. That's kind of cool. So uh, let's go back to the beginning of the company. So you were in, in uh, grad school, getting your MBA. And um, so you wrote this business plan. What was the, take us through the next three or four steps. So very much a lean methodology case study. We, the very first thing we did was talk to a lot of people. We saw the fire and the excitement in their eyes. And then we, uh, we built it, but we, we were soldering, uh, you know, wires in our dorm room at the time. So those first 40 or 50 that we made were not especially functional and apologies to my friends and family who ended up buying them. But, um, but the fact is beyond friends and family, we were shocked how quickly they sold out. So this junky first version that we made ourselves just flew off the shelves in a day or two. We went, huh, okay, now let's make a real version. It's that truism of if you're not putting out a product you are uh, embarrassed about you've you've overshot the goal so we definitely followed that truism uh, <laughs> subsequently we got a little better we found a scrappy supplier uh who could make this for us at a better quality than we could for sure admittedly the first couple years the quality wasn't super professional grade but we were only selling a few hundred or maybe a few thousand a year it was small and so we had to put up with what we could get uh, and that's, that was sort of the story. And I, uh, what I didn't mention is I was part-time with my partner on this. We were both part-time between 2015 and 2018. So we were just kind of seeing what happened. We knew we, we had something people liked, but we didn't know if it could be, we certainly didn't know it could be as big as it's gotten with millions of families using it every day. So we didn't push it as a venture funded startup. We just let it grow. And the key unlock was we realized, oh, we don't have any margin to market this thing. So we made a bigger one. It turned out people loved the bigger one more than the smaller one. And, you know, the, everyone told me sell something for under 100 bucks because that's the price point in electronics. They weren't wrong generally, but when it came to displays of your most important memories, they were totally wrong. So suddenly we had a $150 device. We had a certain amount of margin that we could play with. And very shortly thereafter, we found that advertising during the holidays just made it go whoosh, like Mother's Day, Christmas predominantly. Suddenly we couldn't keep up with demand. So, you know, it's funny, literally the day before we came up with the idea to make a bigger one with more margin or the day before we finally cracked Facebook marketing, we might have said we're never going to crack this. But with those two innovations, suddenly the company was doing a couple million of sales and no one was running it. And that's when I came on full time in 2018. Yeah, 
Ah, super, super. So one of the things I think companies and entrepreneurs struggle with, particularly uh, companies that have a hardware component to it, is you know how, how where do you get it built? There's there's this you know you can go overseas and get it for a much lower price, but oftentimes you gotta put fifty percent down and then it's you know pay the balance before they'll ship it to you. So there's some cash flow challenges. The lead times are long. Uh, how did you guys sort of think about and tackle the notion of of getting the hardware part of it built? Great question. The first insight is that we were not really in a hardware business, which might not that might sound crazy, but we were simply building a modified Android tablet. And that's precisely why we were able to bootstrap because we didn't have intense hardware innovation that had to happen up front with lots of engineers, et cetera. And secondly, you could just go to the centers of the world where lots and lots of iPads and Android tablets are already being created and they're already up the learning curve, they're already up the cost curve on that device. Uh, and that's what we did, right? So you look at where um, you know, Apple, Samsung produce. It's largely in centers around Asia. That's where we went to. Uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't bumpy. You have to really put lots of quality control in. You have to build a relationship. You have to honestly get very lucky with your supplier because you hear these horror stories of, of folks getting uh, in trouble or ripped off. But we were blessed to find a... Uh, our first supplier was good enough, and then we were really blessed through network, I could not replicate it. A friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, something yeah. like that, found us another supplier, a current uh, major supplier who has just been a fabulous partner. And it's the reason why we didn't and still don't have any hardware engineers on staff because we're able to partner and outsource it to somebody we really trust. Wow. And that's, the, I think, the bootstrapped way to approach it. But, but I'll just end with, you couldn't do that if you were inventing an entirely new category of smart right. home hardware. Right. So you gotta you gotta know which business you're getting into and resource yourself accordingly. But we were lucky and smart enough to realize we could go pretty far without the traditional challenges uh, or investments around hardware. Yeah. 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 Custom hardware uh, is uh, is a real challenge, multiple iterations and uh, usually very capital intensive. That's right. That's so, right. so we're the exception. Yeah, super. So speaking of capital, how did you capitalize the business? So what we haven't talked about is I was a venture capital investor for, for a number of years, uh, including right before uh, I went full time with Skylight. So I was at a firm called Bessemer Venture Partners, prominent, fantastic VC, uh, who I'm still in close touch with, and, and, and I love them dearly. Uh, as I was realizing that I wanted to go on an entrepreneurial adventure, Skylight was starting to take off. Uh, so it was natural to leave. And it was natural to think about, huh, should I take a seed round? This was 2018. So seed rounds were you know, not as hard to raise as maybe even right now, post, yeah. post the, the pullback. But I knew, and I had seen a number of stories, including at Bessemer, where hardware businesses got in trouble taking the VC path. Because number one, inventory is insane, especially when you're a giftable product like we are. 
Yeah. And the VC business model is not made for the stress of Q4 inventory overhangs. Um, and frankly, being bootstrapped made us pretty good at estimating inventory and, and making smart bets, which I think there's something about taking venture, which leads companies to get a bit too aggressive. The mentality in the room is like, go, go, go. And they end up overshooting and having to yeah. have a pretty big problem. So I had seen this happen a number of times. I had also just seen that the truth is, I think this is common knowledge, but maybe it's not. VCs don't like hardware investing with some rare exception of some firms that focus on it. They just don't. So the path to raising money, especially for an old idea made new again, which is what the Skylight Digital Picture Frame was. It wasn't anything that earth shatteringly modern. It was just a better UX and a realization that the idea's time had come, it was going to be rough going to raise yeah. venture. Yeah. And the final answer to why we bootstrapped, which is a little tongue in cheek, is because we could. We were profitable from day one. That's a function of decent gross margins and really effective online advertising, especially during holidays. For those who are in D2C consumer, we would say our cost of acquisition or our CPA was quite low. People really wanted it. And that left a profit margin, which allowed us to hire all the people we needed. You know, yes, we weren't hiring the fanciest Silicon Valley teams. And we're grateful we didn't because we hired a bunch of up and comers who have just been phenomenal yeah. entrepreneurs internally for us. But that's the long answer to why we stayed fully bootstrapped and are still, still fully bootstrapped today. Oh, wow. That's great. So uh, I, I love these uh, kind of bootstrapped or organically or self-funded businesses, right? They're, they're, uh, they really understand how to uh, balance uh, all the various different forces that are pulling on you. And I, I too was in the venture capital business for a, a number of years and founded a venture capital or co-founded a venture capital firm. And, and I can remember, uh, and, I, and I've been on the other side of the table as well. I've raised venture capital. And I can remember, you know, getting a $4 million check that ended up in our bank account for our new startup company. And we felt flush. And, and, and we've seen lots of examples of companies uh, in the past uh, who, who did take in uh, uh, financing and raised a lot of capital, who, who probably acted not as judiciously as they should have with spending that capital. That's right. I, I remember, uh, so one of the leaders of Bessemer was a uh, famous uh, VC called Belda Hardiman. And I think the very first day I was at Bessemer was our all hands. He gave out a little card with like the 10 rules from his career. I'm pretty sure one of them was you give a bootstrapped entrepreneur capital and it disappears like sand through a sieve. <laughs> it's just psychology. So uh, even today I'm wary of taking capital because yeah. it feels like we are taught. We are we are a race car of a company uh, and every decision is made with care and thought. And as soon as we loosen that up, you know, sure, we could hire some more people or spend some more money, but that tautness of our decision making is going to go slack real fast. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And, and you're in a business and an industry that's not capital intensive or, or you can make it not be capital intensive, which I think is one of the beauties of it. Right. There's certain industries where it, it's a hundred million dollars just to get in. 
<laughs> so, That's right. So, that, so that, the yeah. two forms I think of capital intensiveness are product to get the product market fit yeah. and then some sort of marketing capital intensiveness. I, there's actually a third I'll talk about in a second. So we don't have the marketing capital intensiveness. We break even and, and make money on the first order, which is if there's one insight for any consumer entrepreneurs who will listen to this, try to break even and make money on day zero because it frees your cash flow. You don't have a payback period. It's it's right. magical. Uh, but the third type is inventory. And unfortunately, we do have that one. So for years, the reason we weren't growing faster was not consumer demand. It was because our loan from the bank or whoever was our partner was only big enough to buy a certain amount of stuff for right. the holiday season. Um, ironically, now we don't have that problem. We've had enough of a track record that we have a fantastic new partner. And now it's really about how do we just grow the demand? But for years, we had to scrimp and hustle and talk to all sorts of alternative partners to get the capital to just buy a bunch of stuff in June through November. So then it could just whoosh out the door in November and December. Very stressful business, by the way, because you yeah. never know if it's going to whoosh or if it's right. going to be sitting there. Yeah. So let's focus on that a little bit because that's a real struggle, right? You're, you're in sort of a seasonal business. And you have a hardware component, so you got to build up inventory in anticipation of those sales. And so it's got to be awfully tempting then to go out and raise a pile of capital, particularly if it's made accessible to you in the form of maybe an equity raise. Uh, how did you sort of make that decision to say, nope, we're not going to do that. We'll, we'll even run the risk of not fulfilling all the demand that we have. Um, Right, because that's sort of the trade-off. Uh, you you run the risk of disappointing customers because they're not going to be able to purchase your product because it's going to be right, out of stock. Right. Yeah. And so we did every year from yeah. twenty from twenty sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and I believe twenty. We sold out early, and we had to turn down all of our marketing and say we're not marketing anymore, which was great for profit, but it certainly disappointed people. And even then. There were years where we sold out December 5th, which if anyone who knows the holiday season knows that that's you're not even like a third of the way through at that point. And honestly, the company was growing really well. So it's, you know, either A, be a maximalist and, you know, obsess about what we left on the table or take the win. Hooray, we sold out. We grew 3x, 4x. Yeah. And we're free. <laughs> we're free. We don't have anybody telling us what to do. We can run the business the way we want sure. it. Yeah. Um, I will say in true intellectual honesty, nobody was offering us capital. And I'm still not sure. We're, we're a very nicely profitable business at, at some scale at this point. I'm still not sure a VC or a traditional growth equity would get on board. I think calendar is changing that as that becomes more of the business. That feels like a billion dollar you know, the next ring or Sonos around this category of family organization. For the photo frame, it was always viewed as, ah, oh, kind of an interesting sideshow that we were growing right. so fast, right. not as something that investors necessarily felt would continue. We felt quite confident in it. So my honest answer to you is if we'd been offered equity capital at a really good price, I might have been tempted to take it, but I will say I'm very glad I didn't. Yeah. Being free is a... You know, you just hear these, there's more or less a couple reasons companies implode. Running out of money is the main one. 
but board implosions and board fights and lawsuits, <laughs> I can count sadly on more than one hand friends of mine who have gotten into conflict with their boards. Yeah. And it's just the messiest thing. I'm sure you've seen it as well many oh, yeah. times. Not fun. So if we can avoid it, you know, there's something to be said for living a happy life while building a good business. <laughs> Super. Super. So uh, the other thing I want to talk about a little bit is sort of the second product. You start a company, you come out with your first product, you have some success, and then you make variations on it, right? Different colors, different sizes. Can you kind of go down that road? But now you've kind of come out with a, a very different product, right? The, the, the use model's different. The customer base may be different. The price point may be different. You know, and there's yes. a lot of companies that when they try that second product, that's when they trip. And uh, uh, you so, are so right about that. Yeah. Talk <laughs> you're, about that. A you're, little. I think many people won't appreciate how spot on you are to ask that question. Most companies, when they launch a second product, just they run smack into the innovator's dilemma. For those who know the, the Clay Christensen theory, all of the love and all of the resources and all of the mental energy is still going to the cash cow or the main product. And so the second one just inevitably dies on the vine because guess what? It's hard to make anything new. It took right. four years to make calendar successful. And I'll be honest with you, we probably nearly killed it more than a number of times. You know, it was just puttering along. People didn't like it etc. There were two reasons why we kept going. One is because I had a great and have a great partner, our CTO, Jake Kring, who it was his vision. He believed in it. And, you know, we're, we're equal partners spiritually in this. So if you believed in it, like, let's go. Um, we believe in following our, our talented people's energy in that regard. But secondly, we remembered the fire in their eyes. And so we, we just kept going and going, but it was a gauntlet. And I honestly am not sure I would recommend it to any other company. I think we, in 99 out of a hundred cases, that product would have failed. We were very lucky that we persevered enough for it to succeed. Um, I think it's the exceptional rarity for a company to launch a totally new business as yeah. a startup and succeed. The only way you do it, by the way, this is the, again, the Clay Christensen theory is you set up an entirely modular set of resources, which boy, we could not afford to do. So all of our right. marketing people, all of our product, all of our engineers still are pretty much sharing this tug of war between frame and calendar. And again, the only reason we succeeded is because at our biannual offsites, we would argue it out. We'd be like, what the heck? You know, frame needs to be getting more, calendar needs to be getting more. Because we had the emotional maturity to face that issue head on, we were able to consistently keep enough resources on calendar to see it through. But I think in most companies, especially at a big scale with a lot of egos, it would never succeed. Yeah, yeah, that's great, great. Good story. So we've been uh, chatting almost 30 minutes now. Um, so I want to start wrapping this up. So where where can people go, uh, uh, <clears throat> Michael, to find out more about uh, Skylight? Sure. So our website is skylightframe.com, S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T, frame.com. You can find both the frame and our Skylight calendar there. 
And you can find both on Amazon as well. Uh, and we are in some retail stores, including a pretty big, exciting one. I don't know if I'm allowed to share it yet, so I'm going to hold off. But look for us in your favorite big box retailer this Q4, and there's a really good chance you might find us. Yeah, super. So that triggered another question. So uh, again, as a as a startup, right now, it's relatively easy compared to 30 years ago to sell direct, right? There's a lot of direct channels. And then there's the, okay, do we also go on Amazon? Uh, you know, so there's these online opportunities. And then there's the traditional brick and mortar. How do you sort of think about distribution? Great question. We were fully direct until I think 2020 or 2021. We did some work with QVC. That was our first foray into retail. Um, retail is really hard. It's hard. Retailers have a lot of demands operationally in terms of discounts, other stuff that, that's a little in the weeds. So I'm very glad that we waited. The other reason we waited is because we were building a category. Nobody knew about that they should be thinking about smart digital picture frames. They thought the category was old and forgotten. So I don't think we would have done much in sales uh, in 2018 or 19, even if we had done all that hard work to get into these retailers. However, once you get to a certain scale, and I don't have a hard and fast rule, but I think like, I don't know, 25 to 50 million of revenue, it's important to be multi-channel. If you're building a generational brand, it has to be everywhere that the mm -hmm. customer is shopping. So folks who hold out from selling on Amazon, it's a little bit crazy. Like I understand about brand dilution and all that stuff, but that's where people are shopping, you know, and, and now post COVID target, Walmart, Best Buy, Costco are where people are shopping. And so you got to be there. You got to hire up the team. And, you know, I confess if we had had venture funding, we probably would have and should have done it a couple years early because mm. there are, uh, some of our competitors made that investment and it, didn't pay off for a couple of years, but I would say to their credit, it's now paying off for them. And it's a little harder for us to get into certain retailers. Uh, we think that'll change as we continue to innovate on product. Um, and it's already starting to change, but, uh, but yeah, you, you don't want to go too early into retail, but you also don't want to go too late. So like everything in business, there's no easy answer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. As, as somebody once said, uh, one of my business school professors said, you know, this is actually harder than rocket science because <laughs> for rocket science, you can actually write a, an equation on how to get to the moon. That's a mathematical equation. Well, there is no mathematical equation for business, uh, for success in business. So it is a lot harder. No, there really isn't. There really isn't. You got to think real hard. And then I would say you have to trust your gut. The best entrepreneurs think, and then they know when to stop thinking and follow here. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, I, I just got approval to share. We will be in Target this, oh, uh, this fourth quarter. So look for us there. Yeah, congratulations. Super. Hey, Michael, you've been a wonderful guest. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for the great questions. It was really fun.
Bela, yeah, that was really interesting. So I guess from my side, I had three big takeaways from your conversation with Michael. And one is I love that they had one successful product and they got it into the marketplace and into the hands of the consumers. And then what do you say, two or three years after that, you know, not a really long time, they were already searching for their next product. And you and I have both heard and been involved with lots of founders and new companies that are so focused on their original idea and growing that idea that they don't start planning their second product early enough. And what happens, either somebody jumps in and imitates them, or there's a lawsuit, or the product fails, or just people get sick of it, and they don't have that second product kind of ready yeah. to go. So I love that they were early on thinking of the next kind of big thing that they were going to try to sell. And it took a long time, right? That was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Second thing, and I frame it a little differently when I teach my students this, because I learned this the hard way too, is you are not your customer. So when you have this great idea and you think, oh, I'm going to go for it and I'm going to get investors and I'm going to bootstrap or whatever you're going to do and you're going to sell it. And then you realize, you know what, holy, holy mackerel, I'm not my customer. Right. And I love that when they were doing their market right. research for their second product, you know, this 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 calendar thing wasn't really something that that Michael thought it was a great idea and it wasn't something he had passion for. But they picked up on the passion and the energy energy of their consumers. Right. That, you know, there was this idea that um, that here was something that when they talked to people, it resonated and it wasn't something that he was in love with. And that's OK. You know, that's okay. Right. And then the third thing <laughs> right. was this validation method that he had, that it's okay. You know, it's not necessarily what they say, but it's how much energy or enthusiasm they have. And they look for something like a nine or a 10 on the scale of 10. And I think that was a really cool way to do this. You and I have both taught validation um, and it's so important, but yeah, a lot of people aren't looking at the right cues uh, when they're validating. And I thought this was a really creative and interesting and effective way to do that. So those are my kind of big top three. What, what were your big takeaways, Bela? Yeah, I think your points are all really excellent, uh, Mike. Uh, so I, I think those are really key. The things I'd add to that are, you know, this is a crowded space and, and it's another great example of sort of figuring out how to elbow your way into and maintain your position in a very crowded marketplace. And, you know, the analogy I think of here is the bread aisle <laughs> at the grocery store. I mean, I don't know how it is in Germany, but at the grocery store here now, the bread aisle is a whole aisle. And there's there's 50 different types of bread where 30 years ago there was four different types of bread. And all of those different types of bread have their little niche, niche, and, and they're all surviving and they're all, you know, getting there. And the important thing is getting on the shelf, which is a whole other topic in itself. But here too, I think, is a great example of that. He figured out, okay, this we've all seen these digital picture frames. And they all pretty much look the same. You know, they're, you know, seven or eight or maybe 10 inches large and they have a little gray plastic or maybe you can get a gray or you can get it in white. But I think the important, one of the things that they did that I thought was really good is if you think about when you had pictures on paper, pictures that you would print, right? You had film and then you'd go to your print and you'd get an eight by 10 print or a five by seven print. And then you'd go to the store and you'd find a frame for it. And you really thought about what the frame was and how it might mat the picture in the frame. So there was a more to it than the picture itself. It was how it was presented was really important. And I think that's one of the key discoveries that they made is that they do custom frames for these digital screens <laughs> that you can display the picture on, right? So. 
I, I think, again, they figured out how we differentiate ourselves in the marketplace and what can we provide that other people do not provide. And the other interesting thing about this is if you do things like this, you're adding perceived value and you can charge more as opposed to a race to the bottom of competing just on price. <laughs> you know, because my shade of gray plastic is nicer than the other person's shade of gray plastic. You're doing something fancy or something more elegant. So I think I think that was a key discovery as well, is that how you display the picture, what you display it in, um, is, is really important. Totally agree, Bela. Great points. Um, the other element that I really loved was the story about how they funded themselves. And you and I have talked to a lot yeah. of entrepreneurs over the years, and we've we've gone back and forth on this. But I thought this was a great a great story about their path. Any comments on this particularly that are good takeaways for the listeners? Yeah, so I think, you know, Kickstarter, I think, is a great concept. Uh, it works really well for certain types of products. And, uh, you know, ha having been a former VC, you take money from an institutional investor, a venture capitalist or private equity firm, you and your company are on a certain set of railroad tracks. <laughs> you're headed into a certain direction, whether you like it or not. But so if you're going to take money from from investors, think about what the parameters are of that money and what the various different terms and conditions are of that money. Because at some point in time, those investors want their money and more back. So there has to be some form of exit. There needs to be some sort of liquidity event. And, and so that limits your flexibility as a business owner. Now, if you have a business that requires lots of capital, you may not have a choice if if you have no other source of capital. So if you if you're starting a business that, you know, it's twenty million dollars just to break get to the marketplace, well, you're going to probably have to go get some institutional investors. Um, whereas if you can start a business that doesn't require that much, and you can do a fifty fifty five thousand dollar Kickstarter campaign, you can get some early product out there, generate a little bit of revenue. And if you can structure your business in such a way and work with your suppliers, which is very difficult in the early days of, you know, not having to pay for things in advance and et cetera, and you can manage your cash flow because it's really about cash flow in, in, in the early years or really all the time it's about cash flow. So if you can structure your cash flow in such a way that, that you don't have to go out and raise capital, then you're in a much better, you're in a much better position, I think, because you you have more freedom of choice. You have more uh, decisions that are within your your uh, your window of opportunity than when you're taking money from from investors, where a lot of those decisions are going to be made for you, or there or other options are just taken off the table. You can't. You, no, we're not we're not doing that because you took. So anyway, it's important to understand that. So I think that's the real key takeaway for me in in these types of businesses. Yeah, brilliant. You know, um, so I guess from my side, we really, I think that was a really interesting interview and a really interesting history and a company that made it through COVID and right through lots of competition and broadening their distribution channels and growing in this kind of organic way because they made this choice to bootstrap and to keep it, you know, uh, you know, uh, turned down or not go for any external equity. Um, just kind of a really neat 
growth story and it'll be interesting to see what happens to them but i you know check out their website and check out their products you know i always like to it's not an ad and there's no you know there's nothing we don't get anything out of this but i think it's always interesting to check out and support entrepreneurs that are doing something uh interesting and in a way that you believe in what they're doing so definitely encourage people to check it out and and, and see what do you think should we wrap this one up bela yeah sounds good to me mike let's wrap her up all right. So first, thank you for another interesting interview with another really interesting founder, Bela. And to the listeners, thanks for joining us today. As always, we hope you found the interest the episode interesting and thought-provoking. And of course, if you have questions about what we discussed, feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, and uh, please do uh, hit that follow button on your favorite podcasting application. Uh, it lets other people find us. And uh, the podcast is now also available on YouTube uh, in a video form. Uh, so you can actually, if you're into that and you'd like to watch the video of the interview and Mike and I uh, talking about it, uh, you can search for The Unconventional Path on YouTube. And uh, hit that subscribe. Radio. Yeah. <laughs> yes, both of ours. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, and, and if you hit that subscribe button in YouTube here again, uh, the way all these various different things work, the more subscribers we have, uh, the higher up in the rankings and the easier it is for other people to discover our show. A so until next reinforcing time. loop, right? We call it. It is very much so. It is very much so. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. That's great, Bela, from over here in Munster, Germany. See you next time.